goes into that point that when we experience pain, when we experience illness, when we experience injury, there's something that's our fault. Because we, if we, if we, if we're saying that someone else can control our body, it also is implicitly saying that we can control our body. We can control what happens. We end up at that point of it becomes blaming, or the patient's not getting better. They must not be doing the things. everyone welcome to another episode of real clinicians real chats my name's uh, alex murray i'm a sports and exercise podiatrist based in canberra australia and i'm kit wisdom i'm a physiotherapist currently studying somatic psychotherapy based in melbourne australia and today we're here to talk about how we can discover more in our patient interviews and, and putting me in the hot seat and talking about some of the skills and things that I've been learning under the guidance of Kit and, and talking talking through all my mistakes. <laughs> and all the things that you do beautifully, Alex. Yes, but that's not where my brain goes. That's where my brain goes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I need guidance? <laughs> Doing everything wrong is all I think. Before we dive in, though, we'll do our usual uh, reflections from last week. Well, not last week, last episode. Hmm. It was a few weeks ago. <laughs> it was, or we could almost say months. <laughs> I decided to go away on my honeymoon. Yay! Which was great, but there was very much a level of, I'm going to do all of this preparation of work and I'm going to put out audiograms on Instagram and then nothing. Yes. I think uh, I've told you this a couple of times, but for the audience, one of my favorite moments was when I did text Alex a little bit hesitatingly, not wanting to disturb his honeymoon um, with a question. And he replied with, you can ask any question you like. I just may not reply. And I didn't. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, that was beautiful. Yeah, so last time we talked about thinking back, we both had to think back a bit about our discussion. Uh, it was around meeting the patients where they are and, and what really came out was agenda mm. and was how we can set the agenda for, for what our patients, someone comes in in pain and we go, okay, this is what we're going to do or this is why we're going to do it. And that can be completely uh, compatible with the patient. The patient can, and a lot of the times they go, yeah, absolutely, let's do that. There's a lot of time that can not, not be uh, really what the patient wants, what they want to do. It doesn't fit with, with mm. them and how they're seeing themselves and their body and, and we end up in sort of a conflict and sort of how we navigate that. And what I, after that chat, I sort of went away and, um, well, I went away on my honeymoon um, and then I came back and when I was practicing and I was sort of talking with patients, I realized when we think about our agenda and, and how we influence our patients, they come in in pain, they have questions, they have thoughts, they have things that they want to know more about. Um, and, and we can help guide them through that. And it doesn't mean throwing away everything that we want to do. They're like, okay, I feel like we need to do, you know, we need to go through this process of cracking my back. I feel like that's what we need to do. We can, we can still guide that process. But if we're, what I was doing 
unintentionally sort of thinking I was I was going with an agenda was patients would roll up, they'd say, this is my problem and I'd dive in and do lots of things that I wanted to do and I would do the examinations that I'd want to do and then we'd come and sit down and go, okay, great. So what do you want to get out of this session or what, what do you want to know? Hmm. We've already spent 35, 40 minutes doing stuff, talking and a lot of the time that went well, you know, patients come in, there's a level of expectation. They expect someone to look at them walking, look at their foot, talk to them about the problem. But from the start, you know, there's going to be patients that come in that have those questions of what happens actually if I want to do this process and, or what if I want to get this out of the session and it completely changes what we do, how we speak. So my, my sort of, my reflection was that if we're going to, if we're going to have an agenda or we're going to meet the patients where they are and, and work with them kind of almost has to be from the start mm. that they can come in with expectations. And I mean, I was taught, you know, patients come in with, you know, they expect to have this, this, this done. So you can sort of move and flow the appointment a lot better by meeting those expectations silently, but without talking about it, you know, do we get to the end of some sessions or we've all had those end of the sessions where patients have a lot more questions or they they have a lot more ideas or they go away and we get the complaint oh that that wasn't what I thought I didn't think I don't think I got value for money I didn't get what I wanted out of it and how much of that is because we set the agenda from the start took control and then when we're trying to hand back control the patient doesn't feel empowered or in a position to do so or that you know we've just spent all this time if they're polite you know they're like well we just spent all this time doing all this other stuff actually i'm not going to ask them to do this you know very long process or ask them to do something different hmm. so my practice is sort of making that more explicit at the start mm-hmm. what do you want to get out of this session today what are you here for you know what can i what what do you think I can I can do for you? What do you want to know? I ask just all these questions at the start so I get a gauge. And if mm. there's something that starts to come up, I explore that. But if it's if it's not, I just find out. It's essentially just reframing the the starting interview um, questions to gain information and direct. And and sometimes I kind of go, well, I'm here for an assessment. I'm here to find out what's wrong. I feel like you know I just I need a you know, have someone look at my walk, how I walk, and we can go, you know, and then I want to hear what you think. Mm. Great. We yeah. know we can, and we, we can set that agenda or we can work with them and say, what if we did this, this, this? Great. And it's like a minute. When it sets the tone, that's what I'm hearing in your words, Alex, is it really sets this intentional and explicit, I want to hear about what you need and I want to help with that. And I also want to, you know, throughout the session, clarify as well if if we're going in the same direction. That's what I'm hearing in your words. So um, it's kind of real attention to the relationship or the the collaboration. And it sounds like what you're saying, again, you're really making it clear. Um, And that can come with discomfort from both practitioner and patient because it's different. Hmm. I think think where, where I would say I can see people go go wrong if they're going to try and implement this or think about this is mm. handing back too much. So I had a patient the other day come in and say, you know, I'm really actually not sure when to get a knee replacement. Everyone keeps saying it's my choice and there's mm. no right time. 
And they're like, I'm completely lost. And I can see that when we hand back everything to the patient and say, well, actually now you're in complete control. Mm. It's actually, yeah. it's actually not what we're saying. We're saying, you know, how do we meet, you know, they've got needs and they've got ideas about themselves and what they need from care. We've got knowledge and mm. experience and things. And we sort of say, well, how, how can we meet this in the, in the middle? And that, that was the whole episode. How do we meet the patient where they are? Mm. Well, and I think a really, uh, you know, maybe my reflection's popping up now a little bit. Um, I had a lovely new patient last week who, you know, persistent pain. So, um, you know, I took the, I take the approach that I take. Um, but when we got to the end, um, and I think it was because I'd created, you know, quite a, um, a safe container for him to be honest. And he said, can I be honest? And I'm like, of course, I'd love you to be honest. And he was like, I'm just wondering when we're going to get to the bit around like the exercise prescription. And I was like, ah, great, great point. You know, because up to there I'd been working around um, kind of experiencing um, approaching his uh, threat, which was bending forward with a rounded back. You know, so I'd been working on doing some of that experiential um, information gaining, both for him and me, um, and had given that as a little bit of a first first exercise or thing to do at home. Um, but yeah, he was like, you know, I, I know I've done exercises in the past and they didn't actually help, but I still I have my brain wants an exercise to take home. You know, and it was great that he spoke up because for him, it required something else, you know, um, or, or an understanding of when that was going to come in or where that was in the process. Um, and that made him feel like his expectations again were still being met by me. So I wasn't completely going, oh, because it's persistent pain, that's not important. I was like, okay, yes, and we're going to also do a deadlift. All right. But we're going to use all the information that we've just gained through exploring, and that's going to actually come into your deadlift. Um, and then he could see that it was a layering approach. Um, and he could see then the benefit of approaching the fear-based um, exercise and, and putting that information, what he gained from his body into the exercise, but he needed me to kind of clarify the value of them. Um, so I thought that was great. Again, just a reminder, and I said to him, that's such a good reminder for me to always come back to again, you know, what was his expectation and what does he feel he needs partly to take away from our session that meets his, you know, needs what I like about that as well, and I think this goes back to exactly what, what your point was about mine, was that if we're approaching this from the start, we're creating an environment where people can feel like they can speak up and they can have that discussion and be like, actually, I feel like I need this. Mm. I see, and, I, and I've talked to many people, mostly podiatrists, fair enough, um, about this, is that they're sort of blindsided when someone comes back and complains. Mm. Uh, about the session and they didn't get what they want out of it. And I'm like, well, they seem really happy. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's the fact that we probably, you know, didn't create an environment where they felt they could speak up. And so when we do these these points, we set an agenda or we, we create this environment that allows people to communicate with us more, that, that, we, that shows we value their input. If mm. they don't have something at the start, they generally, they might more likely have something at the end. And that's always, I mean, you, know, you haven't dealt with the patients if you if you haven't had experiences where 
you'll ask questions or you'll, you'll do things at the start of a session at the end. They go, oh, by the way, yes, actually, now I remember. I've had a triple heart bypass. Um, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I forgot. Slipped the mind. Um, but I think my other um, quick little just reflection is more like bringing in what we're going to chat about today. But I think where we ended our last episode was, you know, meeting the patients where they were also required meeting ourselves because we then become part of this intersubjective space. So I think, you know, it's kind of cool where we're heading today because we're going to, you know, kind of meet Alex and Alex's experiences um, and, you know, hold that with real um, grace because it's hard to sit in the hot seat and, and share. So oh, I'm used to the hot seat. That was my entire, my entire like, learning was to be put into a hot seat and ask questions. So I'm... <laughs> I'm very comfortable with that. We we can be a little less graceful if we want. <laughs> I think there's grace in the clunkiness, isn't there? Well, yeah. Well, it depends on how you handle it, right? <laughs> I've seen some real clunkiness. All right. So if we what what we introduced and what we talked about was well, at the start was the, the point of this episode is how to discover more in our patients interview and, and it's my journey discovering embodiment. And I guess the, the question to ask first up is, is what is embodiment? Yeah. And, um, I think for this discussion, we're sort of agreed that it's paying attention to the intelligence of the whole body. Um, so it's about the lived experience in the present moment. Um, which, you know, I think historically we've probably, um, we've been taught and we have existed in a world where we probably pay more attention to what our brains or our cognitive knowing. Um, so embodiment really is trying to not dismiss the beautiful brain and everything that it brings, but expand our awareness and our attention to um, the whole body. And that might be, you know, sensations, muscle tightenings, it might be images, memories, uh, thoughts, um, could be a whole lot of stuff. Mm. So if I'm, if I'm going to take my slightly less learned sort of approach, what, when we, to how I've been sort of thinking about this and practicing it, when we've gone into, and what I've been taught a lot, even around like psychologically informed practice is to go in and to analyze what's happening to try and quantify, to try and um, really find something essentially objective. Like that's what we're trying to do. Even when we're thinking about psychologically informed ideas, we're still taking things and trying to to make it, to, to quantify as it is making it objective. And then when we have something objective, we can do something with it. What we're focusing on is that's a, a very specific process that's looking only at one side of things, what people are saying, what people are, are doing, whereas what we're looking at here, we're thinking about paying attention to the whole body is that all of those senses, feelings, like I always sort of, uh, I always think a good introduction to it is, is sort of like gut feel. The When you're in a room with someone and you just get this sensation that it's like, well, actually what they're saying is, is not matching what they're obviously feeling. Mm. there's something in my body that's saying this, this is not, it doesn't feel right that I know something 
without having to analyze it, without having analyzed or thought about it. When you have a gut feel that's like, or even when someone's telling you something that's going on, you're like, oh, I can't, can't understand why I can't put my finger on it, but this doesn't feel right. Mm. This feels like there's something more sinister going on. And we've interestingly had papers show that, that the, the most sensitive red flag is the, is the clinician going, nah, I, don't, I don't know, this doesn't feel right, mm. rather than a, 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 a checkbox. Mm. So we're looking at these sort of, when we're thinking about sensations, when you're saying sensations and then thinking about them or, or what's happening, memories, emotions, a lot of it I, I feel like is stuff that's already there that we already know about and we're already sort of taking into account. There's, a, there's another great study in, in tennis where they had a whole bunch of coaches um, guess if a, if a ball was landing in or out and they had no ability to explain how they knew. They just knew. They just said, oh, that ball's going out. And it was the case of that the, they'd seen it so many times, they developed like a felt sense of being able to pay attention to information that they, they weren't able to process to tell whether it was in and out. And they were very, they were very right. So I guess there's all this information out there. And I, I guess, you know, that's what we're we're paying attention to rather than just the things that we can analyze. There are things out there that we can't. Do we want to explain the, the left, the left brain, right brain component of this as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, you know, comes to mind when you talk about the tennis coach. Um, and a lot of lovely work from Ian McGilchrist, um, in the last 30 years has, has looked at our left brain and, and our right brain and how they basically approach everything. So, um, from my understanding, um, each hemisphere actually experiences everything, but it's how they actually um, pay attention to it. And so, you know, the left brain is more, and this is where we live as, as you know, health professionals and, ha and have been taught kind of this way, is around, you know, narrowing our attention. Um, it might be fragmentary, it might be detail-oriented, we become highly focused, you know, on a joint or something or a ligament. Um, and we can become focused on something that's kind of already known um, because the left brain sort of designed to help us manipulate the world. So it's more, there's certainty, it's fixed, um, it's quantifiable, um, and it's disembodied. So it kind of lends itself to that mechanistic approach. Whereas the right brain is, is open and broad and sustained, and it has a sense that nothing is ever entirely certain or nothing is ent ever entirely known. And its context makes it what it is. So it's, it's kind of part of a seamless flow, which means it's always embodied and unique. Um, and, you know, I think what we're going to talk about is a bit how we've kind of both healthcare and also our world has been more steered towards looking at the world through this kind of left brain lens. Um, whilst the right brain is still there and still doing a lot, but are we actually paying attention and, and um, valuing it? Um, and I think a bit of information that um, is, is good to kind of chuck around here is um, I've got a bit of we encode um, 11 million bits of sensory information per second implicitly, um, right brain styles, while encoding six to 50 bits consciously, explicitly. So 
it suggests that there's many more embodied experiences that are happening, um, yet we might not be paying attention to it or creating awareness around it. Um, so I think that that opens up just such a huge potential for discussing how we might honour both these sides in our clinical practice and our learning, knowing that they're both inherently important and it's about perhaps the the um, movement between the two or acknowledging the two or understanding how they work well together. Um, it's not saying one's better than the other. It's saying they're both important, um, but they have different different postures towards the world, if you like. I guess this is a good point to, to sort of highlight a, a few things, especially things that would have, that have sort of come up to me because, I mean, there's definitely pop psychology, left brain, right brain, brain, the thinking brain, the feeling brain. Yeah. Which is, no. Um, <laughs> when you talk to someone who's an expert in the field, like, you know, we've already mentioned him at Gilchrist, mm. it talks very much about how this kind of process has been essentially destroyed by pop psychology. Mm. And that what, I guess, as someone who is naturally suspicious about new ideas and things, it does sound very pop psychology. It does sound very what's going on. But it was interesting listening to, to Ian talk because mm. what he's talking about is essentially how we are real science that looking into what happens with people's brains and the studies being a psychiatrist and being a researcher, how what we actually see the two brain processes are. But I guess the way that I've sort of thought about it to make it a little bit um, easier for me to think about it and sort of correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of what's helped in my journey is looking at what we're doing with our brain where we're focusing on something. Mm -hmm. So we've got that, that 50, 60 bits of information that we're sort of putting this analytical sort of spotlight on. Mm -hmm. And then there's everything else that we're sort of paying attention to in the world that our body is looking after. And we think about all of those processes. We're thinking about, you know, how all of a sudden our body is um, becoming itchy in places because there might be a sensation or something. There's all these sort of felt senses that are occurring outside of our direct focus that are helping guide us. And if something happens, like we think about, there can be a huge amount of noise around us in a crowd, but then something clicks and then we pay attention to that. Hmm. Or that there's a whole bunch of this noise and we're not feeling like we have to pay attention to it. You know, our, our body is processing that information, is paying attention to it, but it's not bringing it into that focus. Hmm. So I guess that's how I've sort of thought about it. And if we're constantly looking at this focus point, I mean, that focus point can be manipulated and, and pointed in directions that can lead us astray because if we're only looking at that narrow cone, what did the words my patient say? Did they say the words it was aching or did they say it was sharp? Mm. And did they say, well, we sort of expand that out to, well, we're going to focus on that, but then what else are the sense are we getting? They're uncomfortable. Mm. They're not able to describe it. They're shifting in their seat. You, you can see that they're just, you know, you can feel the distress rise mm. in the room. All of a sudden there's this, all this other, so when we're talking about discovering more information, it's I see people bring out checklists or have guidance on questions to ask. And then I, I, we start to talk about, well, what, are, what more information can we get when we start to pay attention to not just those questions, but the things around it? And I love, I think you're, you're bringing in that, um, that example that Ian gave uh, in the podcast that we shared, where I quite like that 
to remind myself around left brain, yeah, it's like a spotlight on, spotlight on a stage that's really focused in on one point, but you've still got the whole other stage that's got information and stuff going on. And the spotlight might move to pay attention specifically, but it's still aware that it has a whole stage with other actors or other, you know, props, costumes. And again, that's us in clinic where we've got, yes, we're paying attention to something really specific and detail-oriented, but we have this whole sense of context and um, and uh, lived experience in the room of both the person and us um, and what's going on in that environment and what's going on in the external environment in their lives. Um, and, and so much of this, yeah, like we said, is coming at us all the time, but it's again maybe like how are we paying attention to it or how are we meeting it or um, how are we gauging, um, I suppose, knowledge through it. It's interesting because when, when I think about even just how I was, how we brought up, like I, I, I think we've, we've, I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but I just remember growing up and I mean, <laughs> we're going to talk a lot about capitalism, it, it feels like, or I'm going to talk a lot about capitalism, but there's this sense of, uh, there's this couple of things that come up. One of them is being that, you know, when I was a child, it was a case of not listening to your body. It was, mm. you know, eat all your food before you have dessert, like eat or eat all your, your food on the plate. Yeah. Finish it. Finish it. It was, it was mm. that, you know, okay, you know, you need to ignore what your body's feeling. Oh, I'm not hungry now. I want it later. It's like, no, you're going to eat that. It's that you've got to do all of your work before you can play. It's like, well, actually, what if I'm not feeling very like I, I can sit down, I can pay attention at the moment, but then like I'll, I'll often jump on the you know, computer at night after dinner, after I've done all this sort of stuff, after played a video game and feel better. Like I feel like I can, I've got some creativity going. I feel like I'm more relaxed. Mm. There's always this focus on how do we sort of beat the body into into shape, into doing what we what we needed to do at the time, treating us like machine and following that analytical process rather than mm. there's actually millions of processes going on in our body. Well, Million. and even when you say then, like beating into, into sort of an analytical way, what comes up for me is um, does that then, we see our body as then being compliant and then does that lead us to kind of a relationship with it where it's like an accessory to our mm. brain? or like, or something that we do traumatize or, you know, we do excess exercise or, you know, it kind of leads us to a whole other um, a lens that is about objectifying. And we wonder then around like persistent pain where we then have pain and suffering. And it makes sense to me to then people to really then not like their body because it's still not doing what we want it to do and it's causing pain and suffering. So that real want to then distance themselves even further from this thing, um, you know, to me, it, it starts to make sense around how people present in relationship to their body. Mm. They're coming in and, and they're expecting us to be mechanics, manipulate what's happening. Yeah. And the felt sense in the room is that they feel fear and shame mm. because how have they been taught about how to relate to their body? Well, it goes into that point that when we experience pain, when we experience illness, when we experience injury, there's something that's our fault. Because yeah. we, if, we, if, we're, if we're saying that someone else can control our body, it also is implicitly saying that we can control our body. We can yeah. control what happens. 
Mm. We end up at that point of it becomes blaming or the patient's not getting better. They must not be doing the things. Yeah. And what I think about is there's so many processes, like we think about breathing, you know, digestion, you know, filtering things out of our blood. All of these things are happening just constantly. Mm. And we don't we don't exactly feel them, but our body definitely tells us what's happening. Oh, we're more exhausted today or we're feeling great today. We're getting fear. And sometimes, you know, you'll feel be like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Sometimes you feel sick to your stomach. Mm. There's there's more there's more information that can be gained. Because if someone says I'm afraid, you know, what is that? What is where is that? How do they know that? Mm. Mm. But also where, what level is that? Oh, I'm not not feeling good about doing this. I am literally pooping myself thinking about doing it. Mm. It's two very different. Well, I think that again, sorry to interrupt, but Mm. um, just that again, we normally would like go, why Alex, why are you feeling afraid? And that takes us back up to potentially like a thought process, right? Mm. Whereas if we ask the question, how do you know that you're afraid or what, what brings, what, what brings that attention to you? Like, how do you know that? How and what to me take us into our body? Like, how do I know? Well, like my tummy is like scrunching. It's really tense there, you know, and, and I'm noticing that I'm actually like holding my breath or my breath's short. Oh, and actually like gritting my jaw, you know, so I think this is a really interesting moment. I think this really works in um, with our patients is asking more how takes them to their body so rather than... What, what would be a time, I'm, I'm thinking, because we're talking a lot about this, I'm thinking about it makes sense to us how this can relate to our patients. What could be a great example of, of how we would use that for a, for a patient that comes in? Um, Put you on I the spot. Think... Yeah, totally. This is about you being in the hot seat, but, you know, Um, well, I think, uh, you know, the guy I was talking about last week um, around um, his his low back pain, persistent low back pain, and I think, you know, I had him doing a 10-kilogram dumbbell exploration movement into forward flexion, not worrying about his position. We'd talked a bit about scaffold, a bit of that bit about that beforehand. Um, but he might've been down there and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit uncertain about this. He's like, I'm a bit, I don't know whether I should do this. And I was like, how do you know that? So what's telling you that you feel uncertain right now? So come back to present moment. And I might give him a couple of like, you know, call it giving him a bit of a menu, but you might go like, you're noticing like you're not breathing or like worry thoughts or, you know, is your body doing something? Like, so I might give him a little bit of a, a help there. And then when I come back to that in the present moment, he's like, yeah, like I've got a thought saying, holy shit, what if I get this wrong? And then he noticed and I stopped breathing. I'm not breathing. And he's like, and I can feel my butt like clenching. So, you know, yes, I'm, I'm kind of gardening there with him alongside going, hey, I've got a couple of options. But then uh, the next thing I might do is like go, ah, oh, and is like, is the, you know, is the worry thought just that one or is there more? So bringing creativity. And so he's hanging there going, actually, there's another thought going, do I look silly? So he's got, I'm worried I'm doing this wrong. Do I look silly? And then a thought that was more about like, I want to run away and hide. 
which is more shame, right? So in that moment, in getting him to his body, and thoughts are allowed. I think I think there's this misconception that when we talk about embodiment, we're going to like dismiss thoughts and images and memories. They're so important, but it's that noticing part of it, and getting curious. And creating that safe space where he can say, I feel silly doing this. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. We're doing something a bit new and a bit novel. Um, and we're noticing that thought. We're noticing worry and a bit of, you know, vulnerability. I name that. And what else are we noticing? And then that brings him more comfortable to go, oh, we're in this noticing place. Right. Well, she's actually not judging me. She's just noticing with me. Um. So again, you know, it's it's hard to just kind of go, just start asking how and what. But we do this. We are already doing these kind of disconfirming experiences, experiential stuff with people. This is what we do, right? But it's like, what can we do in that space that actually elicits more information and puts the patient in more of a curiosity space rather than a judgment space? And as soon as they go into judgment, they're going to, that's going to be represented in their body. Because if we think about, judgment. I'll throw back to you in the hot seat, Alex. Like if you feel judged by someone, how might that be represented in your body, do you think? Well, it's going to be, you're going to, you're going to, pat, you're going to start holding everything more. Mm -hmm. You're going to be like, you'd feel, you'd be in more upright posture, you'd be more mm -hmm. defensive, you'd be holding your limbs and you'd be doing all the sorts of things that you'd, you wouldn't be talking as much. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to give away information. You might change some of your responses. Mm-hmm. So your tone might change. You might shut down a little bit. You might disengage. You might not even be there. You might not be in the present moment. You might be in your mm -hmm. head mm. going, how do I get away from this? Or how stupid do they think I am? You know, who knows what happens when... And that's what I mean around like we could just continually keep inquiring. Like so with you, we could go, oh, where do you notice the in in your body? Like where do you notice? So you said straight back. Like is that down the bottom more or does it come from the chest? Where do you notice the rigidity? Is that a question now? Yeah, let's go with it. Well, I don't feel judged, but. Oh, <laughs> damn it. So you haven't created that that point for me to notice. <laughs> But yeah. I guess if, you know, if I was to think about it in terms of when I get defensive, it would yes. be more, it would be more, yeah, low back. Like, yeah. I feel like my arms would also go in front of me. Yeah. So you're kind of doing it now. You're exploring a little bit, aren't you? Well, I feel it's like noticing. my, my history is, is kickboxing. Yeah. <laughs> and so naturally you want to bring your hands up and it's more fight than flight, than flight. Yeah. So fight. And how is that represented in your body? You know, so these are the, you know, and for different people, like for me, fight is just jaw clench. Like it just goes nuts. And I stop breathing and all of my abdominals just go. Whoop. So that's my bodily, you know, and then my brain starts to like go, um, you know, find ways to criticize because mm. I'm defending, right? The... The interesting thing when you were talking about how you're working with your patient is that, have you seen Peter O'Sullivan? Yeah. Yeah, in his, his workshop. Yeah. So much of it, like, just reminded me of that approach because so much of mm. it is is about, I mean, he does it a completely different way. Mm. And, and there's a level of affableness about him. 
that yeah. creates that calm. And I, I think this is, we sort of go back to, you know, really gurus and you look at like Maitland's uh, apparently from what I've been reading, a, a great one for this, that people would come in and feel calm and you'd do the crack, crack the backs and then off they go and everyone mm-hmm. felt great just because of his presence. And when people did the exact same process to the letter of what he written down, they didn't get the results. Mm. And, and I'm not saying, you know, Peter Sullivan's very, very accomplished, good researcher, lots of stuff. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I think there's, there's, there's a similarity in his approach in terms of noticing what's happening and asking people what's happening in in the back. And he's got his own different way of doing it as you've got your way of doing it. Mm. But there is still that similarity in the sense that he's getting people to notice what they're doing, those patterns. I remember him being on stage with a patient and he'd be like, Oh, what are you doing? And he goes, Oh yeah, I'm back to this. I'm back, back to that, 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 that behavior of tightening my back and, and standing up straight. And he's like, no, no, remember, you know, we can stay calm and we can sink back in. It was that, that's sort of what you're doing. What's well, what the word I think you used there, which is really important, is presence. Um, and again, this kind of comes back to left-right brain stuff as well. It always comes back to, to that and, and embodiment. But again, what we're developing is a presence to be able to gain more of this information from the patient and through our own um, embodiment and, and paying attention. Um, and I think this is where we're going to hopefully go with you is, is talking about like, how have you been developing your presence, um, with people in the room and how that's both helping you create a, a, an environment of Peter Sullivan, affability, but Alex Styles, you know, but how's that creating a, a, an environment where we can, um, ask questions and they will be honestly answered and we can go into a curiosity mindset. Mm-hmm. And we can um, explore things and the patient trusts us because we are creating a container that is non-judgmental, that is checking in and going, hey, this is my thought. What do you think? You're up for that. You know, that consent sort of check in, paying attention to how they're going. Um, so I'm curious to hear like maybe what's been, what's been going well for you. Mm. Um, let's start there because that's what? a... I think that's that's a that's a point. You know, when we were talking about last week and and, and how sort of our topics are steadily building on it, on each other. Uh, mm. I feel somewhat intentionally, somewhat unintentionally. Um, I have an agenda. <laughs> I think when we when we think about the the last last time we talked, so much of it was about how we pay attention to ourselves and what we're bringing into the consultation. So someone comes in, they have a problem. They're here for an assessment. They have ideas about what we're going to do. They have ideas about what may or may not work for them, whether at the start of the consult, they know it and they're sort of like, I'm here for for these sort of things or this is where I think we should go. Or during at the end, towards the end of the consult, when we start providing more bits of information to them about what we think is going on and and what's happening and and they can provide that that sort of guidance. And so... so much of it, though, is is about creating an environment where those things can happen. Mm-hmm. If we're just taking control of the consult and we're having this energy that sort of leads people down a track, I mean, I've seen that work really effectively, and and I feel like that's where a lot of gurus do really, really well is they can have this energy that just brings lots of 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 people along. And there's also a question of there's probably a lot of people that want to be taken along. Mm. But when we, we go 
back to what what we're doing, what we're trying to do, where we're trying to help essentially create an environment where everyone can be open and we can go any of these different ways. If someone needs more guidance and we're feeling and we're we're going, okay, they need more guidance. Okay, we're going to go down here. If they have very you know ideas about where they need to go or they 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 want to bring up things about what they're experiencing, we have that. And so for myself, thinking about embodiment, thinking about all of these things that we've been talking about, so much of it is about, for me, being karma. Mm-hmm. And if we think about also all the bits of information that we take, that we can take in or our body takes in without us, I mean, the same thing happens with our patients. They can have a spotlight on on information that we're telling them and what they're paying attention to. Mm. With with in, in that moment that we're showing them something, we've got something on our screen, we're showing them a a diagram with a big red thing on it. Uh, it can be really scary. But they're also taking in lots of other bits of information as well about how they feel and so much of what we're going to be doing, our body language, our tone, our presence in the room will be informing that environment. And if we've been to, like we've definitely had, I mean, I think about, you know, experiences with other healthcare professionals is probably the best to reflect on. You know, I've had experiences when I've been in a room with someone, they're like, what are you here for? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's not a problem. Let me inject you with this. Okay, yep. And then we've got people that have been like, so, you know, take a seat. Lovely to see, you know, you know what, what can I help you with? And just having an open body posture, a, a nice environment that all of a sudden someone feels like, oh, I, I can, I can talk that bit more. Someone cutting you off. I mean, we always talk about those studies, cutting people off mm. really, really quickly. I mean, how much of that is also going to be the fact that that's going to, you know, cr- sever the therapeutic relationship if someone feels like what they're saying and what they're doing is not important. They're put in the back seat. Mm. So I think starting has always been about figuring out what I'm doing that might not be working towards what I'm trying to achieve, mm-hmm. which is trust. It can be about I'm someone that, that will want to dive in and do a lot, mm-hmm. try and get as much done and, and the, 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 the idea of value that was always drummed into me, you know, patients got to leave with value for their appointment. That, mm. That's what's going to help drive me. We're in a private healthcare, predominantly private healthcare field or podiatry is at the, at the very least. And so especially in musculoskeletal medicine. So it was always about how do you get that person back? They've got to have value. They've got to seem like you're worth it for the money. And there's two ways to view that. One is just getting a lot, providing a lot. The, the, mm-hmm. the gift basket or the, the value the value packed meal mm-hmm. getting more stuff value add yeah or it's about providing something that's actually really useful to that to that person so rather than providing you know the value packed meal of everything we can say well actually all you what I, what we think you need for your exact problem is this and this is how you're going to use it and this is how we're going to to help help rather than sort of this this flood of things that they have to try and then make sense of. So what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm not on the right track with you, mm-hmm. is when you say I'm being more calm is helpful. Um, is that slowing down? Is that being more intentional? Is that like how do you how do you cultivate calm? 
and from an this is an embodied question maybe paying attention to the whole intelligence of your body oh so many people will i guess the thing that i would I'd scaffold this is in sort of how this makes sense as well in my brain so much of what, what my practice is is acceptance commitment therapy based mm -hmm. yeah. and the model is is present moment and that when we are in the future or in the past or, or away from the present moment thinking about something else mm. we're not connected and if we're not connected we can't take actions that are going to lead us towards the life that we want to want to live and so if we're you know lost in thinking about the future lost in thinking about the past we're not going to do the things now and for patients you know bringing them back to the present moment is is sort of about focusing them in on okay they're they're thinking about oh my god this injury you know, this is going to be really bad and it's going to take me out of training and it's, oh my God, then my life's going to fall apart because if I'm not training, I'm not exercising, I'm not managing my mental health, when I'm not managing my mental health, everything, and that's sort of that cycle. Mm. Uh, and and so what we're often doing with a lot of things or what I've been focusing on is trying to bring people back to the present moment and saying, well, what can we, what actions can we take now? What can we do now? Mm. It's going to help stop that. How can we actually then foster some psychological flexibility to, to see that there are other options rather mm. than, than doom or gloom is essentially what that process is trying to do. Um, with me, I think it's the exact same thing is that it's, we've also got to foster and be in the present moment. And it's going to be about not so much silencing those thoughts, but sort of being like, they're there and we're just not going to, we're not going to put my spotlight on them. Mm -hmm. That if we're thinking left brain, right brain, that's mm -hmm. a process. I'm not going to spotlight on my thoughts. I'm, I'm going to stay calm. So that's also breathing. I'm not going to be thinking about, or I'm not going to be focused on. Okay, what am I going to do with this information? What I'm going to, what am I going to do with that? I'm just going to put the spotlight on the patient and just think, what are they saying? What are they doing? What am I? What feelings are coming up? What what things can I notice about them? Mm -hmm. How am I really? It, what we haven't sort of discussed explicitly, but what we've discussed off air is is you know so much of what we're doing is integrating the left brain and the right brain. Hmm. And that when we're potentially, you know, off thinking about other things, we're, we're just, we're going to come back to what we're taught more, which is left brain, which is, okay, what do they say? Hmm. Whereas we have that space. And that's, that's essentially what I'm doing is I'm just trying to keep the spotlight, not only on the patient, but then keeps sort of sentence, not the right word, keep present enough that we can start to pay attention to potentially what's else going on in the room. What, when the patients are using those words, what am I feeling? And is that based upon their body language? Is that based upon what they're saying? Is there's their tone telling me something? So like a sense of spaciousness within the session. Hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking again, like bringing in the right brain, if we just kind of reiterate like that open, that broad, that sustained that kind of like nothing is fully known, nothing is fully certain, everything's contextual, like so holding that open and aware, it sounds like is what, that's how I'm computing it at the moment. Is And so you're holding two types of attention, kind of at two completely different types of attention. You've got the spotlight and you're also holding that openness and that I don't knowness. Mm and that things are complex and I'm gathering bits of information uh, that are part of a whole. Mm. That's what I hear. Yeah, it was definitely that part of the brain where it's like you've got to be constantly thinking and planning and preparing and doing stuff. Mm. So like 
someone's telling you something and they're going, okay, I'm coming in with heel pain. You're just like, okay, great. So what time is it? Okay, you're running on time. So if this does involve a cast mm. for, for orthotics or if they are expecting something, you've got that there. You've got your, your, your footwear prescription sheet there and you're looking at their shoes and you're going, okay, we're probably going to need a footwear prescription. So I'm going to need to factor that in to our timing. So I'm probably already 20 minutes down. Okay. And they're, they're telling me this. Okay. There's like all of that is what I was taught. Mm. to do and to plan and to think. And, and that's how you run a really great consult, again, within the service of value. So then they can leave with a little folder full of stuff. Mm. But, you know, what what we can very easily miss is all the other bits of information that are going on about someone. And, and it was interesting because I, I definitely did, I did a second opinion consult and you know, someone, the person that was referred for them in was, you know, kind of lost. I'm not sure what to do with me doing all of these things. And it was literally just having a consult of just listening to them, giving them space. And we sort of were just going through, okay, actually, yep, you know, this is all that you've done. How are you feeling about, you know, how this has gone? And they're just like, I'm feeling stuck. I'm feeling like nothing's getting better. And having that space <laughs> so then turned around and we're just like, well, actually there's really weird things been happening. I'm not sure if I should have brought it up, but like actually my foot's grown two sizes in the last six weeks. Mm. And it was just the simple, the simplicity of having that calmness and that space and that openness of what else is, what else is happening? What have you been noticing? And they mm. sort of went, actually, I have been noticing this. Uh, they have adult acquired flat foot deformity grade two. Their foot is physically, there's a, the heel pain was actually pain that's quite not as common. Usually it's in the posterior tibial tendon, but mm. they actually had heel pain with the plantar fascia and the plantar fascia is one of those main tissues that holds the foot up and that was starting to lengthen and their, mm. their foot was actually collapsing. And then one of the things that we need to do is get that checked one, they don't have something else going on, but two, then, you know, get them in a boot or a orthotic or get them in something to stop their foot physically flattening. <laughs> and collapsing and we were missing that bit of information because we were we were the, the sense that i got was you know in previous consults it was always oh, okay so how do we how do we you know beat your pain into submission mm. just creating that space you know allowed that patient to feel that they could bring up something that they thought was probably not important but as soon as they said it, i was like bingo mm. that's the key piece of information we're missing and it was absolutely analytical. It was absolutely more of that left brain, but we created that environment and that presence that that patient felt calm. Well, yeah, how did it come forward? Mm. And, and like we talk about space, but I think that real sense of spaciousness, which sometimes might be silences, but doesn't mean you then just go and put silences in and then wait there expectantly. It's again that lovely flow of, yeah, how are you feeling about this? Um, what's your posture around? Like, what's your tone? How is openness in a tone? How is openness in eyes and face and breathing? And this is the interpersonal neurobi neurobiology that's now coming in, Dan Siegel, amongst others, around how this is, this is so important when having a dialogue because this is what the patient's paying attention to in us. Mm. So we are then, and we end up being a co-regulator. I think, I think, and I, I have this very bad habit of, of comparing things to dogs. Like, 
you know, you've got a young child, they're sort of like a dog in terms of how, like, you treat them. And it's like, you know, like you teach them things and stuff, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we do an episode on parenting? <laughs> well, I'm not a parent. So, like, this is all just, like, stuff that I'm observing. And 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 my wife just kicks me and is like, you can't say that shit. You're saying, like, their child. Dog, I'm like, no, no, no. But, like, you can understand that, like, there's, there's, they're the same, but, like, like, like there's something I'm talking about in terms of where they are in their like neurodevelopment and like there's a similarity in how you can approach them. I'm not saying their child's a dog. Um, <laughs> like make that explicit. You make that explicit. You know, they're, they're just, they've got the intelligence of Beagle. That's the, I feel like that's a compliment. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I think about here is, is, um, is sort of like the therapy dog effect. Mm. Right? Like you just have this being in the room that's just present, that's just calm. We actually m- um, met a dog like this and he was, wasn't a therapy dog, but it was just this beautiful calm dog. And you just get this feeling of like calmness when the dog's there, he comes up, he just puts his paws on your lap and you just give mm. him a pat and just this things melt away. And you're just like, this is a beautiful dog. I would like this dog. How can I steal this dog? I can steal this dog. No one would stop me. Um, <laughs> but I feel like how much of, like, when I think about in the beginning sort of stages, I'm feeling like, how do, to, how do we become one with the therapy dog? Or how do we become the therapy dog? Mm. How do we foster the the things that we do that where we sort of create that sort of calm presence? Well, what we're doing is we're creating safety from a, a whole body intelligence point of view. And I think this is where... I know we're 52 minutes into a podcast, but um, I think we need to name um, polyvagal theory, which we also need to be really careful about because that has been pop psychologized mm. like crazy, right? But if we bring it in and put a bit of a spotlight on it, um, is it is it has this um, information around creating, you know, felt sense safety from a nervous system perspective, so understanding it through a lens of threat, and danger. Um, but being able to work with that to A, create a space where, they, where then we can, we can um, notice the whole and, and move into bigger things beyond the nervous system. But understanding that um, also I use that theory quite often to um, allow people to see that it's lots of things are not their fault because they were responding to perceived or real danger signals and that their body or the decision-making or their behaviours were based on what that felt sense of danger meant to them. So I think it's really important because we can take this theory and then understand how can we actually create safety from a nervous system perspective in the room to then allow, um, you know, X, Y, Z or what we're trying to do in our in our dialogues with our patients or, or notice more information. Because if they're in a space where they don't, where they have a sense of threat, they're not going to share openly with us. We're not going to get the added bit of information around the foot growing to exercises to mm. be able to really help with the diagnostic part of it, to then see them as a whole person. We'll go back to your foot point before, if someone's sitting in that room, that patient could have very much sat in the room going, I'm not getting better. Yeah. So am I doing something wrong? 100%. What have I done? Yeah. And so there's that question of, well, this kind of seems silly, but it's like, well, actually, no, that's not silly to me. 
I guess the, the other thing that we can, again, now 54 minutes into a podcast, well, I mean, this topic is so expansive and so different and so new and so... Um, well, and it's, it's a toe dip, you know, it's well, starting something. Yeah, but I think the other side of it is to sort of really look at the, the science part of it. Mm. And it's really interesting because hearing someone like Adam McGilchrist talk very much sort of reminds me a lot of the work that I've sort of done with, with Cause Health. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is around the science and how we look at science and these major points. And I always going, you know, there's something that feels like science. When you think about science, you think about test tubes and, and doing like these experiments. But really what we're doing is we're at the core of every bit of science we're doing is we're observing something and then we're creating a system to how to observe it and how to make sure our observations are real what we're observing, what we're taking out of it is real. And what we're seeing from my perspective and, 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 you know, from many others perspective is this sort of dogmatic version of science where an evidence where it has to be from like RCTs and it has to be this quantifiable information, quantitative information Mm. that we can, you know, we can take someone's experience and put it in, into a checklist, into a, into a category. Category. Well, I'm I'm am t- thinking of the word of what it is. Not a survey, but you know, one of those questionnaire. Questionnaire. There we go. We are podcast hosts. Um, proper podcast hosts who absolutely do not forget words. Um, but yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to quantify all of these sort of things. And when we think about embodiment, we think about felt sense. We're not doing these studies on it because it doesn't feel scientific. It doesn't feel like something we can quantify. But when we think about practice, like even some of the most basic, basic questions, someone comes in to see a podiatrist versus a physio versus a GP versus a, mm-hmm. any of these other professionals that they can see, they're coming in because they feel, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, something's wrong with the way that I walk or I feel like I need something in, in my shoes. And the question's going to be is then, you know, information-wise, you know, we as professionals, well, we've got this tool set, but someone's already self-selected, potentially mm. based on a feeling, sometimes based upon, you know, analysis of, well, they are the foot people. Yes. We go to the foot people with the foot mm. pain. But some people feel like they kind of go, well, actually, I don't want new shoes. I feel like my shoes are fine. I don't feel like, I feel like I've just got some pain. I feel like I need some exercises. And they're more likely to potentially go to a physio. Mm. Or um, you know, an osteopath. I feel like it needs to be rubbed and manipulated. So there's already this sort of felt sense and self-selection of how people come in, and that's where you know there would be a fascinating sort of study to just look at how people who go to different professions, mm. what treatments they get, and the likelihood of success. Right? Mm. You know, if someone, you know, how many people go to a podiatrist and then you know they end up in shoes and orthotics and they do great? How many people go to a physio? But what happened if you took to someone who went to a physio and you did podiatry treatment, or you did something, or what? What were their expectations? There's so much going on that can be there that's informing what's happening. And in, and if we're not paying attention to these sort of ideas and concepts, we can kind of just go, well, every patient I see, they just get they get foot orthotics and they do great. So that's a, that's a really common message. Mm. It's like, well, how many people have you asked? Well, I have patients all the time, and you know, just my own point where they come in, they go, "I do not feel like putting something in my shoes. I don't feel like my shoes are a problem. I don't feel like putting something in there will be good, or I don't feel like it's going to be comfortable. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to tolerate it." 
that's a bit of information. They, they're feeling immediately threatened by the, the sensation of that. Well, that's great. So I go, okay, cool. Let's scan it. Nine times out of 10, I find some sort of a, like a plantar fascial tear or I find something more when, when, those, when, the, when the other analytical things start to meh, gel with, with that, um, with that information. And so I'm using that in lots of different ways to provide that information to then go, oh, actually there is, there might be something else more there. And it's been working well. Is it, you know, is it feel less sciencey? Absolutely. <laughs> but that's just because we're taught science as RCTs and taking all this information. But the number one thing you do with an RCT is you take all these people, you strip out all that information. You just go age, weight, does their foot pronate? Great. Do they get better with this treatment? Oh, what do you know? Only half of them did. Which half? How do we tell? We don't know. We just did this test. And but as, as practitioners, we've got all this beautiful information and that's what, you know, Cause Health has been talking about is how do we take all these bits of information that we know around? How do we look at the individual and how do we take all this and use the information they're giving to us as knowledge alongside other knowledge? And they're saying, well, they're just different bits of knowledge we gain and they've got pros and they've got cons and what do we know? We know that orthotics aren't going to help every single person, but how is it going to help this person? Hmm. What what can we draw out of that study and what can we draw out of that person to try and meld and say, is this someone who's going to be more likely to benefit? Well, I think what comes up when you talk about cause health, and this is nothing to do with specifically with cause health, but that that beautiful way of approaching both the the left and right. So, you know, left wants to spotlight and put it in a category and the right wants to allow for the uniqueness of the person and brings in the all of that not knowing and the context and the broadness and the openness. My question is around, that's a lovely way to learn and approach the patient. The other piece of the puzzle for me is the presence of the therapist, that I think that's the important part that needs to be explicitly developed and mm. practiced and workshopped and and then my other piece around that is teaching that in a way that doesn't reinforce the left dominance. Mm. So that's where I think there's another um, another piece of the, the puzzle around how we actually learn and teach that allows what you were talking about around, you know, left and right working together and allowing space for more right because maybe that's what we haven't had experience of. And how that is actually, I think, crucial to marry with, say, a cause health approach. Mm. Oh, and I think absolutely. that's the part that we don't have in our world currently is, is actually courses on turning the mirror around and meeting ourselves um, to develop our presence and to develop our subjective experience and to explore our embodiment and how it might actually be really, really central to helping the other person in front of us. Well, I mean, you know, when we talk about, when we talked about right at the start, what's left brain, what's right brain, what mm. are they? And we're saying that we're, you know, healthcare is much more focused on left brain. Well, right brain's the bit that it's about uncertainty. Right brain's the bit that's about sitting in context. What are we taught at university? We're taught this is the right way to do it. This is the test. And it becomes, and look, I understand why it's happened. I mean, it's, it's not anyone's fault mm. per se. Um, it, it's more about the case of that when you have a system that is talking about safety for patients, 
for practitioners. You're talking about safety in terms of they're physically not going to harm you. You know, they want to have checks and balances and responsibility. And, and this is the way that the system's done it. It's just sort of by eliminating every other sense, you know, it's, it's turned into a point of, you know, we don't want to be wrong. Mm. You know? Well, and it's, you know, potentially as well, that's fear. Hmm. It's, um, it's, you know, how, do, you, do you really want to go to university? And is there expectation now that you go to university, especially when we look at like, I mean, I know in Australia, like we've, the way that we've sort of just brutalized, you know, funding for arts and things is because that is sort of subjective and sort of contextual and, and, and the way that we think about things is, is not, not very sciencey. Uh, and, and we're focusing on what is the answer? What is the things you can look at the book and you can tell someone this is what happens. That's what we're prioritizing in our society. And that's sort of the, the, the way that they're sort of manipulating that funding. And that's sort of what the university's there. We've got to come, people are coming to learn the answer. If you actually say to someone, well, actually, we have, we'd actually, you know, the state of affairs with our research is we actually don't know. Actually, you know, and we just got to kind of figure it out as we go. You don't get that teaching and that calmness. The, you know, there's more that, that focus on getting the right answer. And so we are, if we're only focusing on that and then we are cultivating that and then we are saying that, you know, actually to be vulnerable is and to be sort of uncertain is actually, you know, quite dangerous because then someone goes, well, if you're not certain, then you get rid of your position. What, what happens then is everyone becomes performing this, this dance of certainty with these answers that aren't. Well, and, you know, I've spoken to two practitioners in the last week who spent a lot longer than the normal four years doing the physio course because they had to take time out because it was a really traumatic learning experience. And they're now out having gotten through in a really survival way and are now, uh, you know, struggling, having difficulty in private practice life because they still don't know, but they think they should know. And they still you know, have this knowing that they want to spend time and really listen to their patient, but they don't have the time nor the leadership telling them to do that or allowing them to do that. And so we've got this, like you can see, they want to leave the profession only two years out. Survivorship bias. The people that end up staying, the people that end up teaching, the people that end up leading are the people that survive the learning process, the people that survive the practice and how it's set up. Mm, I think I passionately believe it needs to be different. Mm. Mm. Is that where we're going to end on? Maybe. <laughs> that note of melancholy and... Mm. Well, it's reality though, mm. I think. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have hope, but it means that we're allowing space for this difficulty, like that it is traumatic for people. Like that it isn't helping, that it is adding to the feelings of lots of new grads who are really potentially don't have great mental health heading out into a workforce that's not particularly supportive. Mm. I think it's a reality. And this is what, you know, Shelley Barlow has talked about is that we're in a traumatic field together, the practitioner and the patient. We're in different, having different experiences, but the whole experience can be traumatic for both. I guess it's it's sort of a it's a it's a nice point to end on in a way because if people are going to go out and take this information and start to apply it it's a good sort of point to come back to and say well actually this is very 
subversive. It's different. It's something that can't be dived into head first. Mm. You know, we've, I've definitely seen examples of people that have tried to change practice like this overnight mm. in either the, the way that they do it and, and struggle, like their actual practice individually, but also their entire practices in a clinic and tried to promote mm. these new messages. And it's a slow process. It's a slow process that, you know, should be done with help. Yeah. That should be done with with a coach or a mentor or someone that can provide that that third person, whether that just you know being someone to talk to it doesn't actually have to be someone that, that that you you pay, but just someone that you can check in with, that you can chat to, that you can bounce ideas off because it, it can be a process that really leads you down some some pathways and it can be frustrating. It can be fire, you can be working in a clinic and be quite frustrated that you don't have the time to do some of these processes. So you have to cut corners a bit. How do you do that? How how do you do that in a way that feels comfortable to you? There's so many aspects of this that are that are subversive. Well and I have to leave it that warning. Yeah, no, but I think coming back to again like we try to do with our chats is um, what could how could people take a little step from here. Mm. And I think, you know, first and foremost is understand that this is difficult and that, like you said, we don't want to just make massive changes. So the first change might be noticing, might be noticing left processes and understanding that that makes sense because that's the world we've been in. That's how we've been taught. So if we can notice, ah, that's what I'm doing. You know, I wonder if I could you know, I wonder what, what's coming in from a from an openness stance from the right brain at the moment, you know, and just noticing what we're doing first rather than going, shit, I'm doing something wrong and that's bad. I need to change it. Mm. Um, so I think that first step of like just, you know, validation for ourselves. Um, self-compassion as well. The, self-compassion. That this is normal. Yeah, this is normal and we're all going through it. So you're not alone. And then I think that noticing piece, because again, that layers around what we're talking about with patients is we want to notice. So it's kind of building these skills around, gently building them around awareness and having that awareness with a curiosity lens rather than a judgmental lens because that's, for me, again, one of the biggest keys is if we start to use that curiosity, we build that distance from we don't have judgment and we build that sort of, um, oh, I wonder. Mm. And it's not like I know, it's I wonder. And then, well, the thing for me as well is, is sort of building into it is when we think about noticing, noticing an awareness is what can lead to that change. And so part of what I've been doing and what's been really successful for me, might not be for others, but you know, it is a skill that's often taught in a lot of psychological therapies for how to start bringing awareness to things is, is actually saying to people, I am noticing this. Mm. what I'm noticing from what you're saying and providing reflections where you're then doing that noticing for the patient. You're making it explicit. Yeah. You're bringing it into the dialogue. Yeah. And that can be a really nice start and a really comfortable, easy start I've found because it is just, it's, it's not you're challenging someone. You're just bringing them different bits of information, seeing how they react. And often, you know, once you notice what the problem is or you notice something, you know, just in your daily life, it's easier to deal with. Mm. And, and that's the, and it starts to invade, not invade, but sort of starts to come into your thoughts. You start to consider it. You start to be able to then do something with it. And sometimes that 
that has been the first sort of step that I've found. And then I find that people generally from that point, things start to flow a lot more. Mm. You start to then notice where might be some points if you want to do something really explicit like a process or a task, a feeling, an experiment, it becomes a lot easier to do that. Yeah. And I think um, <clears throat> also your point around sharing, even with a peer, again, we know what we know from Shelley's um, PhD is that the physiotherapist purely by talking about their experiences and what was going on for them helped them build their presence. Mm. So again, even, and this might be scary for some people because, you know, they're like, well, we haven't had these conversations before. And um, so again, you know, finding someone who, who is, feel, does feel safe to have these conversations and it, you might need to pay someone, but you also might have a buddy who you're like, hey, let's just, can we both reflect together? And it's not about judging each other or even problem solving. It's more just about, hey, this is what I noticed. Um, so I think that, again, is a, might be another piece. So you're doing some stuff in, in the room with the patient and then you've also got a space outside of where you can kind of unpack a little bit or just where it can be held gently and softly and curiously by another. Hmm. I think that's that's where I would I would get people to start. Is there any anything further you would add for people or for, for this topic overall before we, before we start well, I to think wrap we should, up. I think we should put in the show notes. We should put in um, Ian McGilchrist's podcast that we both had a listen to because mm -hmm. I think that would be a lovely place for some people to have a little listen and hear him beautifully talk about it. Mm. Um, and I think like what you said, you know, halfway through, like this is vast and we can't speak for 12 hours on it right now. But, you know, I think even just acknowledging that this is a beginning of a conversation and there's so much that we don't know um, and that we're ongoingly integrating and playing around and noticing and um, maybe we can do another episode on it down the track, but it's sort of, I wouldn't say this is done and dusted in a nice little box, left, left brain styles. We haven't put it in a compartment and said, done. Yeah. And often this will be the start, I guess, you know, for my work with you, despite being, you know, quite involved in psychologically informed practice and, and, and doing things with patients. This was, you know, we started the journey. And so this is very much the start for, for someone like myself as well. And we acknowledge that yeah. it's the start. Hopefully this is the start. Hopefully we get people thinking about this. That would be a great, yeah. great outcome, but it's the, yeah. Or just knowing that we're, yeah, you're not alone. We're doing mm -hmm. this too. Well, thank you everyone for, for joining us. It's been real clinicians, real chats. So reminder, I'm, Alex Murray. You can find me uh, on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, uh, as the the rehab podiatrist. Twitter as well. I'm on Twitter. I'd mainly just retweet others. Where, where can people find you, Kit? Um, so I'm Kit Wisdom. I've got a bunch of information on my website, wisephysiotherapy.com.au. Um, I'm Wise Ways Kit on Instagram, Wise Physiotherapy on Facebook. Uh, not. TikTok nor Twitter. <laughs> we'll get you on there. Mm -hmm. My felt sense says no. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you've got any questions, feel free to reach out to us as well. We've got Real Clinicians Real Chats on Facebook, Instagram, if you want to ask questions, uh, post reflections or thoughts, things that come up to you, or you can reach out to us individually. Otherwise, uh, we will... Uh, or you will see us or hear us next month.
Thank you.